We are going to continue in our study of Matthew 24. Um, I want to begin with prayer. And um, as we're studying about end times, some of you are aware of just what's going on in the world with Syria and with um, us taking action against Syria and maybe not taking action against Syria and maybe taking action against Syria. Um, We don't know how it's all going to play out, but there are those who are saying that a strike on Syria could be the beginning of World War III. Others are saying, no, it uh, might just send a message. Um, Either way, we are to be praying for our leaders, and uh, we want to pray for wisdom. Um, So would you bow with me? Lord, we know that um, you will come back. You have promised that you would come back. We know um, that you said there would be wars and rumors of war. And we know, Lord, that in the end, there will be activity in the Middle East, around Israel, and the surrounding nations. And Lord, we confess we do not know um, exactly how those details will work out. Uh, We do know, though, that nuclear weapons and um, strong ideologies uh, exist today. So, Lord, we pray for our president. We pray for our leaders um, that you would give them wisdom. And, um, Lord, while on the one hand we want you to come, on the other hand we do not want war. So we pray, Lord, for great wisdom. We pray for you to direct and guide. And um, through it all, Lord, keep us faithful to you. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, Lord. Use your word uh, to strengthen us. We pray it in your name. Amen. All right, so here we are. We're still in Matthew 24. Um, Jesus may just come back because he wants us to get on with Matthew 24, and he may just say we're done. But here we are, Matthew 24. Uh, They said, Jesus, look at the temple. And he said, it's all going to come down. They said, when? And tell us about the signs before you return. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So here we have Jesus describing the end. Wars, rumors of war, persecution, and so forth. But now, for the first time, he tells us what we need to do when this happens. Verse 13. But the one 
who endures to the end will be saved. Your job in the midst of this is to endure in the faith. Persevere and not give up saying, uh, well, the world is so out of control, there must not be a God. How could God allow this to happen? Your job is to stay faithful to the end, and those who do endure to the end will be saved. Now, this verse is a verse that is significant in the debate over whether a Christian can or cannot lose their salvation. Here it says that final salvation is conditional upon enduring to the end. There are other verses that seem to teach that when you're saved, you are 100% secure. So the question is, is our final salvation conditional upon us persevering? Or, once you're saved, do you have security of salvation? Now, um, for those of you who are new to studying the Bible and new to theology, and uh, theology simply means the study of God, um, the best way to arrive at a biblical position is not by stacking up a bunch of verses that prove your side and then lobbing them to the other side and saying, hey, take that, you know, take that verse. And then the other side, they stack up their verses and they lob them back at you. And it's a, it's a verse, rather than, than talking to one another, you're just lobbing verses back and forth. You ever have a discussion like that? Okay. The best way to arrive at a biblical position, a theological position, is to say, all right, here are the verses that say one thing. Here are the verses that appear to say the opposite. Now, my job is to synthesize them. To come to a position that, that allows for all the verses to fit together. Okay, So it's not get your concordance and find as many verses as you can to support the side you already believe. It's, I want to approach this objectively. I want to find the, the, all the verses that are pertinent to this, this issue and see how to fit them all together. God's Word cannot contradict, so they have to fit. So that's what I want to do. So let's take a look this morning at two sets of verses. The set of verses that seems to teach eternal security. That once you are saved, you are not only saved now, but you are held securely. And then we want to take a look at those passages that seem to teach a conditional element of salvation. All right, So here we go. Let's take a look at the security passages. And I'll tell you right away, um, I do not believe a truly saved, truly justified, blood-bought sinner who has repented and is truly saved, truly justified, uh, the Holy Spirit lives inside of them, I do not believe they can end up in hell. All right, that's, I'm, so I, I just want to let you know from the beginning, that's where I'm coming from, 
but let's look at the verses on both sides. So here, John 6.39, Jesus says, and this is the will of him who sent me. So who's he talking about? God, yes, thank you. Are we awake? All right, so there will be, all right, I'm going to do this with quiz questions to make sure you're awake, all right? So uh, this is the will of God, right? That I shall lose none of all that he has given me. God's will is that Jesus lose none of all. So what's none of all? What's none of all? Zero, all right? So God's will is that I don't lose anybody that he's given me. Notice that he um, talks about, and you, you can't get around it. If you're a Christian, it's because you've been given. God the Father has given you to Jesus. So once you're given to Jesus, once you're saved, God's will is it that he lose none of all, but raise them up at the last day. Okay? I take that to mean Jesus, who always does God's will, will not lose anyone. All right? Then, a few chapters later, John 10, 27 through 30, Jesus, the good shepherd, says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now, that's how you know somebody's truly a believer, not just that they go around saying, I believe, I believe, I believe. No, they follow him. They're obeying him. They're not saved by their obedience, but if they're saved, they will obey. Okay? So here's what is true about his sheep. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Now, even if this last phrase were not part of the, the verse, look at what the first part says. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Uh, I'm told in the Greek that that's emphatic. They shall never, ever perish. So, once you have eternal life, you can't perish. Why? Because he's holding us in the palm of his hand. Right? Now, the side that says you can lose your salvation comes back and they would say, well, all this is promising is that he's protecting us from external sources, from Satan and demons and cults and false doctrines. He, he's, he's holding us and protecting us, but it doesn't promise us that the sheep won't take a dive themselves. Okay? In fact, they will tell you the only thing God can't do is change your free will. And if the free will of the sheep decides to take a plunge, he can take a plunge. He can fall of his own free will out of God's hand. And of course, that's that's the, the main thought of the other side. Free will, free will, free will. God cannot keep us from sinning. God cannot keep us from falling away. So when you explore that and you say, where do you get that? That God can't keep you from sinning. Well, it's just, it's just philosophically uh, for us to be human, we have to have free will. And if we can choose to believe, we can choose to not believe, they would say. So you're telling me that Scripture says God can't keep us from falling. Jude 124, to him who is able to keep you from falling. 
Yeah, but what about free will? I, you know what? You can go to all your philosophy classes you want. God can keep me from falling, and he promises to keep me from falling. To him who is able to keep you from falling, ESV says stumbling, right? and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Okay? This is such a great verse. Todd even wrote a song called the Jude, was it the Dude, Jude, the Dude, the Dude Toxology Report. <laughs> the Jude Doxology. Okay. <laughs> Dude. All right, so... Um, <laughs> How does it work? I don't know. I'm just glad it works because you know what? If it was up to me to keep myself, dude, I would fall, okay? All right, now, um, here's an example of it in real life. Last Supper, Peter says, even if, if I have to die, I will never betray you, Jesus. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And it's interesting that, that Satan uh, has to, uh, to go through God. you got a whole Job thing going on here. But Satan is going to attack you, Peter. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. By the way, do you know what Jesus is doing for you right now? When he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is our high priest. And you know what he does for us? He prays for us. He intercedes. He is our high priest at the right hand of the Father. So he's doing for us what he's doing for Peter right here. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you would think that if free will triumphed here, he would next say, and... If you turn again, strengthen your brothers. But he says, no. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You're going to be buffeted by Satan. You're going to take a pretty mean fall. But I've prayed for you, and you will not lose your faith. You'll be restored. In fact, you'll be stronger, and you can strengthen your brothers. That's an example of how he keeps us. Now, this is, uh, this is the, the major verse here. Romans 8, 29-30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Jesus is the prototype. He is perfect. You, believers, he foreknew you in eternity past. And... He predestined your life so you will be conformed to the image of Jesus. He is changing your character and putting you through an obstacle course to refine your character so you become like the prototype, like Jesus. And those he predestined, so so he foreknew you, he predestined you, And those whom he predestined, he also called. So in time, he called you to himself. And those whom he called, he also justified, declared you perfect in his sight. How? The minute you believe, your sin is transferred to the cross. Christ's righteousness is transferred to you. That's called being justified. So if you're a believer right now, you are justified in Christ. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here's the chain. 
You're foreknown in eternity past. He predestines your life in time he calls you. When you believe, you are justified and you will be glorified. Now, while those are interesting words, we could do a, a month of Sundays on each word, right? But those aren't the words that are most important in this discussion of whether you can or can't lose your salvation. The most important words are the words those. For those whom he foreknew, those are the ones he predestined. And those are the ones he called and justified, and those are the ones who will be glorified. In other words, the very same ones who are justified. If you are justified in Christ right now, truly justified. Now I know there's false justification, not false justification, but there's false belief. But if you're truly in Christ and you are justified, what that means is he called, the same group that are justified are the ones who were called, the same group called are the ones predestined, the ones predestined are the ones foreknown, and the ones justified will be glorified. No one falls off the bus. The unbreakable chain of redemption. Okay, Now, um, so those are, those are five of the verses that seem to pretty clearly teach that you cannot lose your salvation. But what about the verses that make final salvation conditional upon you continuing? Here in John 8, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, here's the condition, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Assumption, if you don't hold, you're really not my disciples and you're going to hell. 1 Corinthians 15, 2. By this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. You've got to keep, keep holding on. Colossians 1, 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. In our passage today, Matthew 24.13, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, as one who believes that a true believer can't lose his or her salvation, I have no problem affirming that only those who persevere to the end in their faith will be saved. In other words, I don't see the security passages and the conditional passages it's contradictory. Why? Well, genuine faith is a faith that is strong and perseveres because it's a God-given faith. If God gives it, it will persevere. It will last. And if it doesn't last, it wasn't genuine God-given faith to begin with. Now, the Bible is clear that not all professions of faith are genuine, and not all kinds of faith are saving. You know, the guys who are studying James, you know this verse. 
you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So there's a kind of belief, you know, the, the devil believes Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for sin and rose from the dead. He has an orthodox faith. His faith is more orthodox than our faith. He's not saved, though, because he has no trust in God. Okay? So, what does this mean? Let's go back to, uh, to the John passage. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. Some of their faith was genuine. Some of their faith was not genuine. How do we know? To the Jews who had believed in him, who had some kind of belief in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Those who are truly saved, you will show yourself by persevering. Those who don't continue, it wasn't true faith to begin with. Okay? This is why I do not like the phrase, once saved, always saved. Okay? The, I, I do like the phrase, um, eternal security. I do prefer the Reformation term, the perseverance of the saints. If you're saved, you will have perseverance of the saints. You will persevere till the end. But the phrase, once saved, always saved, gives the impression that as long as at some point in your life you make a profession of faith, you're in, no matter whether you show evidence of that for the rest of your life. So... um, you know, apparently uh, the 50th anniversary of uh, Charlie Manson is, is coming up. I don't know if that's an anniversary, but he's the guy who did all those murders and he carved the swastika in his forehead. And um, Now, what if his parents said, well, we know Charlie isn't the best Christian, but when he was six, he went to vacation Bible school and he prayed the prayer. And we believe in once saved, always saved. So Charlie's in. Even though he carved a, and he's demonic? Oh, yeah. Really? No. Not all professions of faith are genuine. All right? Philippians 1.6, though, if your faith is genuine, it says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He finishes what he starts. Now, all of you know somebody, though, who you could have sworn was a genuine believer. And now they are, uh, they've abandoned the faith. How do you explain that person? Scripture does explain that person. In 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, meaning they've abandoned the faith. Okay? But they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Boy, we, would have, we were sure that they were one of us. They were in the church. They were even teaching Bible studies. But now they're, they're, they've either abandoned Christ or they're off in some cult. John says, well... They really weren't one of us. Their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, the other side says, well, that's too easy. You just say if a person uh, abandons the faith, they were never saved. That's too easy. I, I guess it's too easy, but it's what Scripture says. 
just trying to be scriptural. Right? Now, um, if I believed you could lose your salvation, there would be one verse that would be my life verse. <laughs> Why you would want a life verse about the fact that you can lose your salvation is kind of <coughs> creepy. But um, it would be Hebrews 6. If there's any verse that seems to teach that you can lose your salvation, it's Hebrews 6, 4, 5, and 6. Where the writer to the Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Might have been Paul. Might have been Barnabas. Might have been, as Rob Bell says, the woman who wrote Hebrews. We don't know. No, we we don't know who wrote it, okay? Um, Some of you are like, really? No, don't go by what Rob Bell says. Hebrews 6 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. Okay, they've turned their back on Christ. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Boy, if, uh, if ever there was a verse that at least at first reading seems to teach the possibility of a believer, I mean, this person's been enlightened, they've tasted heavenly things, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, seems to be a believer, it's impossible if they fall away to be restored again. Not only does this seem to teach that they have lost their salvation, but they can't get it back. Okay? What do we do with this verse? Isn't it interesting that the author, whoever he or she may be, doesn't come right out and say it's impossible for a person who has been saved or who has been justified if they fall away, to be restored again to repentance. They use this interesting language, enlightened, tasted, shared. Why those words? Here's a valid question. Is he speaking of those who have actually crossed the goal line of salvation Or is he speaking of those who have come close to the goal line? They've been enlightened and they've tasted but not swallowed. They've shared but not fully partaken. In other words, if if this is the goal line, have they really crossed it? Or are these people who've come very close and fallen short of true salvation? And they say, I've had it. And this guy walks off the field. He says, I I don't want anything to do with this anymore. Okay? Let's look at these words. Enlightened. It's impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened. You know, technically, what does enlightened mean? To be informed. To understand the facts. I guarantee you, there are people in this room who understand the facts of the gospel. But you're not saved. I'm not going to point you out. Okay, I don't. I don't know who you are. Right? 
But Scripture makes it clear that you can be enlightened, understand the facts of the gospel, and still not be saved. Could this just be saying, here are people, Jews, who've come into a Christian community, and they've understood the gospel, but they're not saved. Who have tasted the heavenly gift. Some people think that's they've participated in communion. I, I, don't, I don't know uh, if, it, if it's that or if they've tasted salvation and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've been taught the word of God, but they haven't swallowed. And I ask myself, is there ever a place in Scripture where tasting is contrasted with drinking? fully eating. Yeah, on the cross, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted, same word, tasted it, he would not drink it. Jesus tasted, but he didn't drink. Just describing people who have tasted the things of God and salvation in the gospel, tasted, but they haven't consumed And then there's this word, shared in the Holy Spirit. Some verses say, partaken in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's different kinds of partaking. Um, The the analogy that came to mind is when, whenever the Smith family goes for ice cream, um, like 31 flavors, okay? Now, here, I, I have a philosophy of fast food. My philosophy is while you're standing in line, you need to make up your mind. Um, I mean, have you ever been at McDonald's and finally somebody gets up to the front and they go, oh, there's a bunch of stuff here. Let me see now. And they've got like 11 kids. And Which one do you want, Johnny? Do you want the, how many McNuggets do you want? And it's like, you should have figured this out before you, you get to the front of the line, Okay. So, I mean, when I get up there, I know I want a number two and a napkin, and I'm out of here. Right? But when we go for ice cream, Baskin's 31 flavors, here's my lovely wife. Wow. Could I have a sample of that one? No, no. Can I have the chunky monkey? Mm. No. Can I? She, she partakes of all 31 flavors. I know what I want the cookies and cream right away, okay? I go up there, I give me a two scoops of the cookies and cream, and I go, I partake of that while she's partaking in a different way. Is it possible that this person who is partaking of the Holy Spirit has come to a church, they've sat under the gospel, they've even felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they've seen other people transformed, they've seen prayers answered, they've seen miracles, but they haven't swallowed, they haven't imbibed, they haven't partaken fully of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are three ways to interpret this passage. Okay? One is the Arminian position 
which says this is describing a truly saved person who has walked away from Christ, they've lost their salvation, and they cannot be restored. Okay? Now, most Arminians don't understand that if they, if they believe that, if, if they believe you've lost your salvation, you can't come back and get it, this says. So pleading with them to come back to Christ, no. If you had it and lost it, you can't get it again. But some people believe that this is teaching that a truly saved person can lose their salvation and cannot be restored. That's interpretation number one. Interpretation number two, the one I just gave you, is that this is an enlightened, tasting, sharing person, but not a saved person who comes to the goal line and walks away. Now, this would be saying that there's a point of no return. Those of you who are on the goal line and thinking, you know, how to stick my... No, I'm not going to. No, I'm out of here. There's a point of no return, and you should be terrified. You should be terrified. Because when you turn your back, your heart becomes so hardened that you can't be renewed again to repentance. Let me give you a third interpretation, and I'm not so sure what I believe about this one. But let's call this the hypothetical or theoretical warning where the author may be giving a genuine warning that if this happens, if you're truly saved and you walk away, you can't be restored, but the very warning is what keeps us saved. You go, wow, that's far-fetched. But let me, give you a, let me show you a, a, a parallel here, and it has to do with Paul's shipwreck. In Acts 27, you know, Paul is on, on a ship, he's a prisoner, he's going to Rome, and he gets caught up in a hurricane. And for two weeks, they're, they're uh, tossed about, and they don't eat, and they're throwing up, and it's just, they're dying, and they're, uh, no, actually, nobody's dying, but they're ready to die. And Paul calls everybody together, and he says this, last night an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Guys, come here. You're all going to make it ashore. God promised. But a few verses later, they crash into the rocks and they see an island and uh, some of them are going to try and sneak ashore. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. A condition you can't be saved unless you stay together. Wait a, wait a minute. We already have the unconditional promise that we're all going to be saved. Isn't it false to give, to give a conditional passage? No. The conditional warning is what ultimately brought about the fulfillment of the promise. You're all going to be saved. Some are trying to sneak away. You can't be saved unless you stay together. They hear the warning, they stay together, and the promise is fulfilled. All right? 
Now, I don't know if that's the proper interpretation or the earlier one I gave that it's describing people who are at the verge, but then they walk away. But I really don't believe the whole of Scripture teaches that they're truly justified, truly born again, truly blood-bought person in the hands of God who promises to keep us. I don't believe they can walk away. I do believe it is possible to appear as a Christian, to be in a church, to do ministry, to preach, and not be saved, and then to fall away. But there's a vast difference between a deceived person falling away and a truly saved person losing their salvation. On the one hand, it's the person's fault. On the other hand, it's God unable to keep you. And that's a slap in his face. Now, we're going to participate in communion. Here's our good shepherd. He promises, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's him dying on the cross to pay for your sins. But not only does the good shepherd promise to pay for your sins by laying down his life, He also promises this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In other words, at the cross, not only was your salvation purchased, but your security was promised. He saves to the end. It's not here Salvation, now good luck keeping it. It's I will die as the good shepherd, save you and hold you in the palm of my hand. I want to invite you to the Lord's Supper.